0: listening to the hunter conservationist podcast.
1: So what have you been doing in Michigan this summer?
2: Um you know, I've been actually um training. So I've never really been much of like a an endurance person, but I've been training for a half marathon. So that just sort of i picked that up starting last year um just with social distancing you know there is no activities and anything through covid so what can i do to do you know just get out and active and hiking and and learning trying to run longer distance was sort of the uh the go-to and it served two purpose right it, it gets you one active and outdoors and, and doing some things in covid and two it gives you a little bit of break from your family since you're kind of locked in the house with them constantly day after day. So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so I've been doing a lot of that and stick sticking with it. And I've got a, a race here at the end of August, uh, uh, beginning of September that, uh, I'm training for. So that's the personal thing. And then obviously work is, you know, at this time of year for work, everything is just getting caught up in from, from last year's hunting season and building towards next year's hunting season. So a lot of the, uh, the work behind the scenes that goes into you know a hunting digest or a trapping digest or whatever happens in the spring and summer um so when Mm. folks pick it up in the fall and start reading it you know it's like well when did when did this happen when did this change well it happened when most people aren't even thinking about a fall hunting season it's it's uh it's it's leading up to it and it's when everybody's out enjoying you know spring turkey hunting or or fishing in the summer um, we're we're still thinking about deer hunting for the coming year
1: yeah here we're in British columbia we're kind of in that that phase right now of on the hunting regulations consulting on that and proposals and all that kind of stuff, but here it works on like a two year cycle yeah. So the discussions right now are for the regulations. They won't be applicable to this fall, but they will be for next year and then for a two-year period. So there's always like a two-year span of each regulation. So um, it's a little controversial in the sense that if something dramatic changes, um, people feel like you can't really be responsive. Yeah. You know, for the upcoming fall. So.
2: And I understand that. So we actually, before I came up here in Michigan, I've been in Michigan for um, going on seven years now. And when I came up, you know, we were told that, oh, you know, you'll have a a couple years to sort of get your footing because they do deer regulations on three-year cycles. And the reason that they do that is because they want to, they don't want to go through and start flip-flopping regulations back and forth, you know, left and right, because you want to try to set something and try to establish a trend and you know, something that changes in one year, doesn't necessarily make a trend. There's, there's always a a lot of things and variables that can go into something. So they had developed this idea of setting a trend for three years and then reevaluating things and going back and seeing if it's the outcome that you, you expected or wanted. And I feel like since I, I got here, um, you know, the first year I was here, we we had uh, discovered chronic wasting disease for the first time in Michigan's history and free ranging deer. So that necessitated a response. And then we were coming off of three really um, severe winters in our Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, so that sort of necessitated a response. So even though we set these guidelines for three year changes, I feel like I've done deer regulations every year for seven (laughs) years so even the best laid intentions uh, or the best laid plans um are, are are changed um based on whichever way the current you know political winds or you know biological winds blow
1: yeah yeah no i hear you there yeah it's pretty much kind of the same the same thing here kind of these political pressures and groups and stuff get kind of on a tangent and, you know, start pushing and forcing things. Uh, British Columbia does not have, has not confirmed CWD here in the deer populations. It's very close on the Alberta BC border and the British Columbia, Montana border. It's pretty close. Um, It's kind of, it's, you know, the scientists are monitoring it and it's moving westward across the prairies and it kind of cropped up around Libby, Montana uh, a couple of years ago, but mostly kind of like staying stuck to the towns, looks like urban deer mostly and it's it's staying a ways away from British Columbia. But yeah, that's a game changer for for everybody.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've I don't I've not had any conversations with anybody from Alberta, but um, one of the individuals that works in saskatchewan used to work here in the states and and we overlapped in some of our discussions and meetings and she still chimes in a little bit for uh some of the conversations because it's 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 not just uh, obviously a, a, a u.s based disease it's not just a canadian disease it 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 knows no bounds um and some of the some of the data and information coming out of saskatchewan of course they've had it quite a while there is is pretty eye-opening. I think she was saying that in certain places like there's prevalence rates you know up to 80 percent. It's it's just an enormous number that I don't think has been identified anywhere in free-ranging deer um, you know that that has been documented. They've they've noted those prevalence rates in captive facilities but um, certain areas where it's where it's uh, free ranging and, and having those high prevalence rates is really, really shocking. And, um, uh, it'll really be interesting to see how, you know, the deer population responds over time, because, you know, once, once an animal gets that disease, you, you can just take the hourglass and turn it over. Like the, the time is running. There's, there's never been a documented recovery from that disease. So as more animals are picking it up and picking it up earlier in their lives, um, how that affects the population dynamics of the deer herd is going to be fascinating and perhaps maybe a little scary to uh, see unfold
1: yeah yeah exactly I mean some of the stuff I've heard kind of like you know longer-term stuff that they're seeing sort of at a population scale is uh, the population is getting younger uh, and bucks are getting younger so it's it it sort of proportionally hits older bucks more and so then as they start to fall out uh, your your uh, buck ages are coming down and your overall population is kind of younger so that I, I could appreciate that from a management perspective kind of changes you know what maybe hunter objectives are you know for social hunting you know kind of going to say sorry guys and gals it's just that doesn't exist in the demographic anymore so
2: yeah i've I've heard similar things from wyoming and and wyoming's one of those states that's had it you know for as, as long as anybody and there there are places there that have seen the same same sort of trends and seeing younger bucks in the overall population of course when you think of of going out west to hunt you think of you know a lot lower pressure sort of limited draws um and and obviously what goes along with that is older age class deer or elk or whatever so it's it's really viewed as a trophy destination for a lot of people but if those trophy animals aren't there it becomes sort of a challenge you know the other side of that is uh, because cwd can stay in the environment for so long um and if you start thinking about every animal depositing those those prions into the into the environment whether it's through saliva or urine or feces or whatever Um, you know, you're just creating contamination sites that are just, instead of being, you know, uh, sort of randomly, you know, random pockets, you know, now it's becoming everywhere where there's deer because that's, you know, 80% of your deer have CWD, which means that your naive deer are picking it up out of the environment a lot younger in life too. So, and then again, once you start that, once you get that that disease contracted, um, you know, provided that you have sort of normal genetics and not the specialized genetics, which might make you live a little bit longer with it. You'll still potentially die from it if something doesn't kill you first, but, um, you know, these animals can be picking it up really as soon as they're hitting the ground as fawns. And then you think of the life cycle of a deer, you know, most, most animals that contract CWD are on average are dying within about two years. And that is—that's right when they start the reproductive, you know, you know, contributing to the population. So if they're if they're contracting a fatal disease early in their life before they're able to really contribute to, you know, the next the next generation and have offspring, it becomes it could potentially become a real challenge in how how these herds are being managed sustainably.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure
2: yeah saskatchewan
1: you mentioned saskatchewan they've kind of given western canada the gift of C- cwd they've also given western canada and the northern states the gift of the invasive wild pigs as well so, wow. <laughs> so that's, that's a that's a whole whole nother topic we had an episode <laughs> a long time ago with uh, dr ryan brook from the university of saskatchewan he was uh, kind of the uh leading expert up here that's mapping and monitoring their their expansion um across the country and he's always beating on people because nobody's doing anything about it so
2: yeah 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 and you you could easily make the argument that both of them are just both are ecologically just devastating or potentially devastating and yeah it's and i'm sure that he's you know with his experience he's spoken with a lot of people that you know initially and, and maybe naively think like oh how cool is that, that you have another animal to, to hunt or another game animal to pursue? And it's like, no, let's, let's talk about the facts with this. And I, I certainly can't get into that to any level of expertise, but, um, that the level of ecological uh, destruction that they can cause, um, it's certainly outweighs any benefit that it could be. So, <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely.
1: As, as, uh, as he described it, if a committee sat down and wanted to design the worst alien invasive species that you could ever, your imagination could ever conceive, you would come up with the invasive wild pig. So
2: (laughs) I've got i I've got a good friend who's a deer researcher here in Michigan. He's been doing deer research for, oh my gosh, decades. And uh, he, he got put onto wild pigs and research and you know, for, for years, I think he was just scratching his head. He's like, I cannot figure these animals out. They, I mean, there is no pattern to them whatsoever. They like you, you find one and you start to, you'd start to pattern them a little bit. And, and all of a sudden it, any sort of spooking or, you know, scaring in the, in the whole group is just, it all of a, they're like miles away. I mean, just the ability for them to reproduce and travel and then just how much they eat. It's just, it's just incredible.
1: It's crazy, and oh, man. we've learned that they can carry the CWD prion, pass it through their gut, right. and it's still viable. So that's right. they're they're now starting to kind of consider it as being a vector in in transporting CWD to new areas of the country as well. So scary shit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well we're really starting off on a high note here we with some are yeah, people are like
1: oh my god now we'll get into some cool stuff with white tailed deer
2: yeah are people are drinking already because this is all <laughs> well they should they that's should be stuff. regardless
1: <laughs> kicking back with the kicking back with the beer that's right <laughs> now we'll get into some we'll get into some cool stuff so hey everybody it's uh, mark hall your host
0: and curtis hall the co-host speaking of drinking and beer This episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is sponsored by the Fisher Peak Brewery in Cranbrook, B.C. What a better way to enjoy this super hot weather we're having than grabbing a cold beer. Lucky for you, Fisher Peak Brewery has you covered. Cans, growlers or going in for a crisp pint of draft. They have many options available. Next time you're in the mood for a cold, refreshing beverage, make sure you head down to the Fisher Peak Brewery to quench your thirst and thanks again to those guys once again for being a continuing sponsor and supporting what we do here at the hunter conservationist this episode is once again supported by iHunter. thanks again guys good news if you haven't already taken advantage of their offer they are still offering you a wicked deal they have apps for bc alberta saskatchewan manitoba ontario new brunswick and nova scotia We feel that every hunter should be using the public land feature, whether you're just starting out first day of hunting or you've been a hardcore sheep hunter for 40 years. Everyone has moments and times where you're just not sure. The private land's over there. Is this rangeland fence? Is this private land fence? There's always some little bit of uncertainty. So give yourself the peace of mind and know exactly where the private land ends and the public land starts. So the folks at iHunter are still offering you 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. Head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THC Podcast when you subscribe to the public land subscription. All that information is still in the show notes as it has been in all the other episodes. So make sure you check that out right now or we'll say it again at the end of the episode so you can enjoy the episode and then go get the iHunter subscription. So... Thanks to both of those guys for supporting what we do. We really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. And uh, pandemic stuff is easing, so people are starting to travel, coming through our hometown here, Cranbrook, British Columbia, so they can stop in at the hideout and have one of their beers and sit close to people and all that good stuff. And I, Hunter, uh, I was going to mention this. We also know, or you know, that our conservation officers here in British Columbia carry that app as well they and will use that to check, uh, in situations where there's conflict, um, the location they're standing on in the proximity of a private land boundary. So,
0: yeah.
1: um, they're using it too. So if there's a conservation officer listening that doesn't have it, you can get 20% off user. Totally. <laughs> there you go. Um, Thanks for joining us, Chad.
2: Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for the invite.
1: So at the very opening there, when you said you're getting into training for a half marathon, um, if your family listens to this episode, you could be in trouble because you said you're, you're getting into it in order to get away from them. So yeah, you want us to yeah. Like edit over that and say like, <laughs> if you don't want to do the dishes. So it's like, oh, I got to go train
2: no they uh they don't really follow my work stuff a whole lot so i'm pretty comfortable that they're not going to see or hear anything they they uh and they know that i put my foot in my mouth enough so i'm not too worried (laughs) about it and and honestly there's there's probably a benefit for me going out and running just to for me to get away from them i'm probably driving them just as nuts too so no worries on that
1: you never know. Maybe it came the other way around. Were they the ones who are buying like Runners World magazine and just kind of going, "Hey, you want to check out this magazine?"
0: Just plugging it into some, the subconscious. We got you
1: some new shoes, running shoes.
2: Exactly. Yeah, maybe that would be great. I'm I'm certainly open to sponsorship ideas. So. <laughs>
1: Hey, there you go. Um, hey, everybody. So we have uh, Chad Stewart uh, on the show today. So Chad is a biologist in the deer program at the uh, Michigan Department of Natural Resources Wildlife Division. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what's what's you're not, nice you're about not my... like the, You're not like the chief of whitetail
1: management now? or No,
2: no, not head, a chief. Head of? <laughs> 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 no, it's uh, so my my official title is uh, they call it a, a management specialist. Um, mm. So it's it's a mouthful, and I, I was really fortunate when I got this job. They uh, they include elk and and moose in the management uh, title as well. So um, so that's kind of neat, and that's one of the things that attracted me to Michigan. Just obviously the beautiful scenery, but you know the opportunity to work with with elk and moose as well. Um, that being said, probably 90 to 95% of my job is dealing with whitetail deer and machine.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: So, so they throw the cool stuff at you, but they, they mostly work with, with deer. And then obviously, you know, I love working with deer. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's far from a consolation prize. I, I absolutely love it. And I've been doing it for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that we have, we have elk and moose and I can be involved in some of those conversations in this state is, is. Is really neat and something that's next, pretty uh, cool
1: absolutely yeah, absolutely absolutely cool so it, it, might, it might be changing a little bit because of our cwd discussion but i had heard this joke years ago that um that the the Elk and the moose and the mule deer biologists—they show up to work on Monday morning and they got a plan and 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 look over data and figure out their research programs and populations and trends and hunter harvests and all this stuff—and they're stressed out because populations are going up and down. And the whitetail deer manager just shows up to work on Monday morning and his population's already gone up. So
2: yeah that doesn't sound like a joke that sounds real life actually so, so. it's it's not far from the truth yeah um m- most of i think uh, at least my colleagues and i you know time is spent thinking about ways to you know either stabilize or or reduce you know growth of white-tailed deer rather than you know uh, worrying about the numbers being too low there are very few spots at least in my state that we have those concerns or at least have those concerns with, with anything that we can control over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so how many, how many deer are in the state of Michigan whitetails?
2: Yeah, we get that a lot and you know, we don't, we've, no we've got, we've gotten to the point that we, we, we no longer do or provide, you know, estimates. Um, so we used to, it's <laughs>
1: <That's> no point.
2: <laughs> well, you know, so, so much of what we try to do is um, you know, and how we shifted in our management philosophy is going from, you know, providing a number and an estimate. Uh, and we've, we've developed models in the past. And, and to be honest, we still use some of those models for especially developing like uh, surveillance, you know, estimates in terms of numbers, how many, we, you know, how many deer we want to sample to get a certain confidence level for CWD or, or, or we have bovine tuberculosis in, in Michigan as well and parts of it. Um, so we use some of those, but we don't have as much confidence in those because those models um, haven't been updated in, in, in a little bit. Um, mm. Now, the number of deer that we're looking at and dealing with, we don't have to have a perfect, accurate estimate. But you know what? What we found throughout our our state's history is that you throw out a number, and, and you've got. Uh, you've got a model that has been developed by some of the biggest and brightest minds in research that, that bring, you know, that, that look at all the variables that try to couch all of the, the, the variance and and, um, deviation associated with that estimate. And then you bring forward the estimate and say, well, we think in, in this County or this region of the state, there are this many deer. And you've got uh, a lot of uh, the hunters going, there's no way <laughs> that there are that many deer. And this, so uh, what happened was it was, it was almost uh, an exercise in, in almost like public trust. You know, we would put a lot of information out there and, and, and work on it. And they would not believe the numbers that were out there. And and we still deal with that with some other species. Um, you know, some of the the bear numbers that we put out, you know, we've developed models for that too. And, you know, it's, you have to have that trust developed to to be able to stand behind those numbers and you could you could have the greatest science that you have behind it to 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 show it but if you don't have that trust built up it those numbers are somewhat meaningless so uh, at least in the public eye so mm-hmm. what we really try to focus on now is is trends and and we look at trend management uh so you know, is, is the population uh, seemingly increasing, decreasing or, or stable based on some of the trends that we're looking at. And, you know, a lot of times we look at harvest management, hunter, uh, harvest numbers, hunter success rates. Um, we look at, you know, uh, agricultural damage or complaints. Uh, we look at deer vehicle collisions, which is not the most reliable, but it's it's not bad for sort of like a secondary uh, variable that we, that we weigh. So we look at a lot of those things. We look at um, some of the, the the hunter opinion numbers as well, and, and you know what kind of uh, numbers and levels of support that they've seen in terms of how the deer herd is. You know the numbers that they've seen. Uh, so we try to piece all of those together, and as you can imagine, some some variables align up very well, and then you might get a variable that is doesn't doesn't track what the other ones are doing. So you still kind of have to. It's, it's sort of a combination of science and art um, to sort of follow it and travel you know, and work through it. And that's that's a that's a really uncomfortable answer for a lot of people to hear. But that's 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 really the truth and how things are, are, are being at least managed in our state and certainly a lot of other states.
1: Yeah. So 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 you're more looking for just sort of the big picture. Are things are all of those various indicators kind of telling you that it's sort of like the populations kind of the same as last year and the year before and the year before kind of like stable, or it looks like it's trending up or it looks like it's trending down. That's kind of more the the lens.
2: Exactly. So when you, you know, when, when we get, you know, a question that's, you know, how many, how many deer does do you have in your state? It's, it's really sort of a, the number that I would be able to provide would be a one year snapshot and whether that's a good year, an average year, a bad year, um, you know, th- there's there's not as much context with a, a, just a number. Um, but when we can go through and say, look, we've, we've been seeing, you know, declining hunter numbers, but look at our antler buck harvest. It's been either remaining the same or, or going up or hunter success rates going up. Um, you know, the number of deer vehicle collisions has is, is been at a high level, albeit stable. You know, we can say, you know, with relative confidence that our deer herd is, you know, either stable to increasing. And that, that provides a, a, a framework over time. And I think that has more, I think that has more value in terms of how the population is being managed rather than what is your number in terms of how many do you have on the ground right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes, that makes total sense. So, um, so let's back up a little bit and kind of look at this, this deer the white-tailed deer itself. Now I had read a long time ago that the white-tailed deer is a North American species. Like it, it doesn't exist elsewhere in the world. It didn't come from elsewhere in, in the world. Like is, is that, is that true? Is that real?
2: I, I, th- I think the common belief right now is that the white-tailed deer um evolved in north america um, which is a little bit different than saying it it only exists in north america because we know that white-tailed deer have been moved around i think there's uh, places like finland that have uh have like a white-tailed deer population right now but um but but everything else you know wherever white-tailed deer exists elsewhere uh, i think i think new zealand has a couple um it's been it's been facilitated through anthropogenic movement of yeah, okay. animals
1: so so some kind of precursor ancestor likely came across the bering land bridge and then that form or that that animal evolved on the north american continent into the white-tailed deer
2: yeah the, so the 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 general understanding right now and what i believe is accepted is that the the, the genus Otocoilius, um which is White-tailed deer and mule deer um, evolved in North America, and obviously um, there was some, probably some sort of geographic barrier that it's probably like a glacier or something that separated that caused that speciation difference to occur. Um, that developed, you know, two separate strains of Odocoileus, and then um, as I, I as I was preparing for this, I was reading a little bit about it as as sort of South America rammed into north america there was continued movement and you know you got further speciation um, and that's where you get maybe things like a like a brocket deer or something like that but again the, the 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 story that i was reading uh that was you know researched by if, if you've ever spoken with him or followed him on twitter his name's uh jim Heppelfinger he's a fantastic yep. deer biologist out of arizona um and, and really knows his stuff especially going back to evolution Um, It seems like Otocoileus was one of the original, you know, main members of, you know, the the Cervidae deer family side of the branch that, that spurred several other um, species as, um, you know, land masses sort of came together and land bridges connected to previously um, separate areas. Um, But obviously the white-tailed deer and the, the Odo Corleus virginianus is one of the most prolific and widespread of, of all the deer species that we have in the world.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, just in the last, in the last few years, uh, I've read and heard you know, stuff of documented cases of white-tailed deer showing up like in the northern boreal forest regions, like into, you know, the uh, probably north of the Arctic Pacific divide, um, pushing their way into the Northwest territories, the Yukon. Um, I know I lived in northern British Columbia for a long time as, as a kid. There was only mule deer up there. And now there's where I used to live, whitetails everywhere, um, heard stories. I don't know whether you have about them starting to show up a little bit in Southern Alaska. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, it seems, it seems everything in the literature is talking about it's, it's like humans that have allowed this expansion in North America. Like it's our, They've been one of the species that have benefited from like agriculture and urban development and, you know, and all this sort of stuff and expanded. And I also kind of can't, can't let go of the idea of, of these species that are documented that are actually expanding north. They're lagging behind the receding of the glaciers you know there's a, like about a 10,000 or 11,000 year lag um between when the glaciers have receded and 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 species are finally sort of getting optimum habitat and they're they're marching northward and i know that's been documented with various little bird species you know in the 50s they were in like you know, California, and then, you know, by the early eighties or seventies, they were finding them up in, you know, Southern Alaska as, as, and so I kind of wonder if humans hadn't have been here, you know, or Europeans hadn't have been here and done all this stuff, if the white tail would have just went, you know, stuck the flag and said, this continent's ours mm-hmm. and, and done the same thing. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Um, I, I, I think you're, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Well, when you think about just the range of a white-tailed deer as it stands today um you can you can certainly make the argument that that humans have improved you know the where they live and 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 the white-tailed deer has very much um adapted to human presence you know whether it's agriculture or even in a suburban or urban setting you know it, they can they can do quite well in those areas but when you think of the range of a white-tailed deer from northern South America, throughout Central America, all the way through the United States and eastern and midwestern parts of the United States, into you know Canada. Um, that's a that's a huge latitudinal change for for one species um, to to adapt to. So, and obviously, there's I think there's like thirty six or thirty eight different. Subspecies, but um, you know most of those you can't really tell a difference between. You know, I mean you, you can certainly tell a difference between a Saskatchewan white-tailed deer and a and a southern Florida white-tailed deer or a key <laughs> deer or something like that. Uh, obviously, there are there are dramatic differences on either ends of the spectrum, but in between they all largely look very similar. So I think I think a lot of credit honestly has to go to just. White tailed deer's biology and adaptability that you're right, even without humans occupying you know most of this continent, they'd probably be doing pretty damn well just based on their general makeup with things.
1: Yeah, and that's that's why I kind of think you know that their expansion in North America was correlated to you know human development and stuff, but but I do feel you know that they had the capability of doing that because you know where we live we hunt in the rocky mountains and i mean you can you can be up in above timberline in the alpine and alpine basins and stuff and you're like you know you see an animal in the back of a basin and it's like oh there's a bighorn sheep and it's like oh, it's a white-tailed deer yeah. you know like it's it's they're they're up there and and that's not an environment that's like you know they're benefiting from you know logging or or agriculture like that's sort of unchanged for the last 10,000 years and
0: well up, I've, I've even very... found I've even found a, I, I found a shed of a whitetail way way up high one time I was at mule deer hunting with a buddy and there was a shed like sort of basket buck style little four point but like what are you doing when you're shedding your antlers at that time of year way way up here
1: that's crazy. Well, when I found antlers in bizarre places like the caribou antler I got, the the story I get is like, oh, it's like the biologists are working in the helicopter pilots and then they decide they don't want it and they throw it out the helicopter door like, ah, I don't want this caribou antler. And it's like, so your whitetail antler, it was somebody threw it out of a helicopter. That's why you found it.
0: up there. No, is that what it was?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Those pilots have different decorating styles than I have, because if there's a, if there's an antler or shed or anything on the ground, I'm picking that thing up and I'm putting it somewhere in my house. So yeah. <laughs> hey pilot. Can,
1: hey pilot. Can I open the door and throw this <laughs> antler out and hopefully miss both the tail rotor and the, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, some rabbit holes here. So in your experience, um, Managing white-tailed deer 95% of your time. What are some of the things for them as a species, like that's unique to white-tailed deer, you think, you know, that's special to them for managing, like their ecology, their biology, like like even maybe their 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 social, you know, value and stuff? What what are things that really make them stand out for you different? Than any other species.
2: Yeah, so um, one of the reasons I, I started getting into white-tailed deer and white-tailed deer management was, you know, the attraction that one single animal can have, um, not only from a hunter's perspective. You know, and of course, I grew up, I grew up hunting in um, Pennsylvania, and you know, if you're familiar with Pennsylvania, it's in the sort of mid-Atlantic, northeastern part of the United States has a tremendous deer hunting tradition. You know, we had at one point over a million whitetail deer hunters in the state of Michigan, or I mean, Pennsylvania, I say Michigan. We had, <laughs> we've had it in Michigan too, but in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and it was, it's literally all, you know, if you lived in a hunting family, which mine was, it's it's what you talked about as you went into like late summer and early fall throughout the entire rest of the calendar year, you talked about hunting, you, I mean, you thought about hunting, you, you went out to, you know, whether it's a, a friend's farm or a cabin up North or wherever. I mean, so there were, there were whole entire, you know, um, social networks developed around <laughs> hunting, uh, and hunting white tailed deer. So that's something that always appealed to me, you know, just the value from, um, you know, more of like a personal sense, or, or how 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 valued they are amongst hunters, to and, and how it can it can lead certain individuals, you know, myself included, to be almost like tunnel vision for several months of the year, and that's really all you are thinking about, or, or doing, or talking about. And then as I got into college and started learning more about them, you know, from a biological standpoint it was fascinating to me because they were largely considered like a, 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 what they call a keystone species. Like literally everything can be affected in, in a, in a natural setting because of white tailed deer and it both on their numbers and, and how much food they consume and, and, you know, their, their preferences and what they select when they eat, it can affect, um, you know, um, understory bird populations. It can affect, um, you know, nest predation success for meso carnivores. I mean, there's, there's so much re- and this is just one herbivore that's just walking through the woods, just picking out, you know, plants to browse. Um, it's, it's just fascinating everything hmm. that can be tied to a white tailed deer and their numbers and specifically their mouths. And then when you talk about actual management, what stands out to me is the reproductive capabilities so um, that's that's the thing that is like eye-opening to me because you think about a white-tailed deer uh, especially a a female white-tailed deer there's no such thing as as reproductive senescence in a white-tailed deer so once she starts breeding every year she will continue to have fawns um, as for the rest of her life she doesn't just get old and her ovaries dry up. She will just continue to crank out fawns every year of her life. Most years, most years, um, she's dropping two, obviously they can get to three. Um, if she's in a really poor condition, she could certainly go down to one, but, um, you know, they can be extremely productive. And, you know, the thing that I learned early on was that if a white-tailed deer can get to be about 80 pounds or so in its first year, 80 to 85 pounds in its first year, as a fawn, they can become um, reproductive, re- you know, receptive to breeding and actually have by have a fawn by the time, of their own by the time they turn one years old. You know? Oh so, my God, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and in an agricultural setting um, where it's more common than not because they're living in nutrition, um, you know, throughout, you know, their growing their first growing season, you, it's not uncommon to see anywhere between 20 and 30% of your fawns being bred that first year. So the little, the little, you know, six to seven pound fawn that you're seeing in, in, in Michigan, or their, their birthing season is, you know, around late May, early June, the one that you're seeing in, in May and June, can be pregnant by the time say late December or January comes up. So when you think about how early they're breeding and then how long they can breed and then how many fawns they can have, um, it's incredible. Rabbits of the ungulate world. (laughs) Um,
1: I've called them, I've called them when I've got into this, discussions about people we'll get into this like about the you know the antlerless harvest I'm sort of like they're like the radishes of the ungulate world this is like you know you throw a few seeds out and you're like oh my god where did all these well mm-hmm. that, that's an awesome explanation 80 pounds that's like a that's like a male Labrador retriever yeah. you know like it's it's not
2: that's not a lot it's not a lot yeah and wow. you know and, and so it's again not uncommon for um for me to get calls in january or even february that you know hey i've got this buck that's chasing this little doe around and it's like <laughs> yeah it happens like <laughs> he's kind he's of robbing the cradle a little bit but yeah that's she's she is she is oh, um, re- reproductively mature at that point yeah wow that's wild and then i i'm pretty it was last
1: year i'm pretty sure on on social media you had posted some information about um some statistics or some research around the numbers uh like of the of the fathers of fawns so like a, a doe could have have twins but they're from different different dads. Yes. Like there's there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the deer world.
2: Yeah again more more uh more sort of like deer trivia and and you know i i don't know if i'd quote me on the exact number but it's it's much higher than what you would expect it to be and it's again somewhere i think in the 30 to 40 percent range it's, yeah that's know.
1: the number that sticks sticks in my head is like i think it was like 25 or 30 ish percent or whatever of yeah. of i think you said like twins had different yes Different yes, father. Yeah. Different,
2: like, different parental. Yeah. Lineage. So, yeah. And, and what, what generally happens is, you know, I mean, a doe is in estrus for just a short amount of time and she's receptive, you know, it's only, you know, a couple of days. Um, and obviously if there's a, a, a buck in that area that, that gets wind of that, he will try to lock her down. And, and obviously if there's breeding that occurs, um you know he's he's he he breeds and he might stick with her a little bit longer and and maybe try to breed her again um or he could just move on to the next one um meanwhile another buck comes in that might be a little bit bigger better more desirable from the doe standpoint and she'll she'll be open to breeding um with him as well um so the the other option is a, a bigger buck comes in and runs the the first breeder off and 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 breeds that that doe so um yeah it's it's as i'm looking outside right now and see a doe walk in my backyard um, <laughs> yeah those 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 <laughs>
1: those bucks come in and breed again you know the ones that do full marathons not half marathons like those (laughs) those ones
2: (laughs) absolutely yeah they're they're the the true studs of course yeah but actually there's there's somewhere you could have two two full studs fighting it out and and maybe that younger buck kind of slips in on the on the side um because she gets tired of waiting so i've heard heard and seen that happen too so Mm.
1: so i guess on on the other end of the spectrum there what do we know about the 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 bucks and breeding ages like are they they, they can't be breeding as young as a doe is receptive i they,
2: no guess. they can they can be so when during my undergraduate time um um i went to penn state university and they have a a captive research facility there with deer and one of the things that was always imprinted on me um the, the individual that was leading the, that, that, that research facility, he would put all of the fawns in a, in a pen that were born that year. And then he would put one really nice buck in there. Like that was probably like two years old or whatever. So I I came to him one day and I said, why, why did you put number blah, blah, blah in, in with all those fawns? And he says, when some of those, uh, doe fawns become receptive. I want him doing the breeding, not all these other little, you know, essentially button bucks, you know, first year male fawns breeding, because that way I know who the sire is, you know, when, when they are get pregnant and have, you know, fawns, you know, next year, um, because that two and a half year old is just going to absolutely run off any little button buck, but they would absolutely breed, um, if they had the chance, but, you know, socially, it doesn't it probably doesn't happen a whole lot in the wild because they're they're literally the low person um mm. in, in, in the pecking order. So um but given the chance they would absolutely do that and would be huh. capable of of it.
1: Like like biologically capable of biologically it. capable, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's that's wild. So so that that is gotta be one of like the I guess like the the Powers of the adaptability of white-tailed deer in in expanding in the new habitats, um, quickly occupying vacant space, or or good growing seasons, or overcoming like like bad bad winters. Like their their ability to rebound after like a severe winter's got to be got to be pretty rapid compared to other species.
2: Absolutely, a hundred percent. So we know that um, deer populations, when, when they do go through a catastrophic, catastrophic event, you know, whether it's a a really severe winter with high snowfall, long, long, long day, you know, a lot of days with high snowfall, cold temperatures, um, you know, what really, what really can kill deer in a, in a Northern latitude is Not necessarily the duration of snow but maybe like a really heavy intense snow late in the spring uh, when their energy resources have been depleted Um, that can really take its toll on certainly a lot of younger deer Hmm. or um, i don't know if british columbia has had any impact with this i I don't know but um, every every couple years we have an outbreak of what we call hemorrhagic disease roll through some of our deer populations and uh, that's, a, that's a virus that's transmitted by a, like a little biting mid, they call it a midge. like it's almost like a noceum uh, type thing. It's like a gnat. Um, and a lot of deer that contract that virus can die. it's not a hundred percent fatal like something like chronic wasting diseases, but um, it works a lot faster. So you know, oh. usually in the fall, you'll get, reports of deer that are either dead or dying, usually near water. And, you know, most hunters know that if they hit a deer, you know, with either with their, with their bow and arrow or their crossbow or their gun, and it's not necessarily the, the hit that they wanted on it. A lot of times they know that that deer goes towards water and heads to water. And that's where they'd get a lot of comfort, um, and, and try to, you know, just, just get a little bit more comfort before either recovering or expiring. Same thing with this hemorrhagic disease. It basically develops a a fever or flu-like symptoms, and uh, they go to water, and that's if they're going to die. That's where they die, in and around. Um, But that can. Yeah, I haven't
1: heard of that in British Columbia. Yeah, Um, I know there was something. I don't know if it was hemorrhagic. It it was common to like outbreaks were common in California, and they detected it on Vancouver Island off the coast of British Columbia last year in a handful of um, coastal black-tailed deer um, but i don't know if that was the same one but
2: a lot of people call it blue tongue virus and i don't know if blue tongue rings a bell or if that's what you're talking about um you know um from a from a viral standpoint and i'm far from a virologist or an <laughs> epidemiologist um it doesn't really impact white-tailed deer in difference a whole lot but they are different genetic strains of the virus and it's important to make a distinction, whether it's blue tongue, because there actually is a blue tongue virus and hemorrhagic disease, which a lot of people just refer to as blue tongue. Um, because, uh, my understanding is that I think sheep specifically are a lot more susceptible to blue tongue virus than, than hemorrhagic disease. So, um, yeah, you know, for, for like a sheep farmer, or certainly if you're out West and have, you know, wild populations of sheep, um, you want to make that distinction well known.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, I have not heard about that in our white Hills in the West, but could, could be missing. I'll have to look, i have to look into that. But, um, mo- most of our, like here in the West, major downturns are, are strictly severe winters. Um, usually what happens here is we get heavy snowfall winters where you're getting the snow, getting up to that, like close to the two foot depth but that depth is coming in january yeah. and so then by springtime they're you know they've been plowing and digging and a lot of food's been buried and so then then the late winter mortality is is incredibly high but it's it's usually that that the midwinter snow depth that that gets them
2: yeah the, an old biologist told me that once you get above Really, twelve inches or, or one foot. Um, you know the the deer is expending a lot more calories just just from a movement standpoint. And obviously, yeah, it's a lot more difficult to replenish your calories in the winter time. Um, so, you know, so much of a, a deer's livelihood is just sort of camping out to an area where you know food exists um, and shelter exists, and and try to get out of the elements and and conserve as many calories as you can because you know, from an individual standpoint, you're going to lose calories um, throughout those, those that hard winter, and you just hope you have enough in the tank at the start of the winter to get to to, to green up so you can start building back up. Um, and and obviously that's a lot easier for older, bigger animals that um, can pack on a lot more weight than a, than a younger animal that is either lower on the pecking order um, or or just doesn't simply have the the mass to to
0: survive
1: to survive yeah well we were talking about this just before about um, being worried about converting between Imperial and and metric so the number that I recall the threshold is 38 centimeters of snow is where their energy demand starts to go up so I got a little tape measure here so that's that's 38 centimeters and flip it over and that is uh, 15 inches. There you go. Pretty I, c- close. I can't do math, so
2: yeah. So it doesn't take a lot. No, <laughs> no, and and especially if you have you know multiple days. Um, you know, I, one of the things that we talk about in our Upper Peninsula here in Michigan is you know if you get about 100 days of you know 12 inches of snow on the ground that 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 essentially defines a, a severe winter. Um, and obviously that's sort of an arbitrary number because is it 98 99? I mean, it's, it's just a, it's just sort of a guideline, but, um, once you get that many days of snow that of, of high heavy snowfall or heavy snow on the ground that, you know, that that's going to take a toll on, on your white-tailed deer population. Yeah. but You can try to account for that too, with some of your management and regulation settings and, and, you know, certainly coming out of that, you know, what to expect too.
1: Now. With that, with their ability to sort of prolifically like breed and hold up or expand their population, then um, I would assume that predation, natural predation, is probably not like a huge deal to a, the population level. Um, probably contrary to a lot of hunters, is like, oh no, you know, <laughs> wolves are wiping out the white-tailed deer, you've, you've probably got all those stories too. But um, what what I know of in our part of the world is that most of the biologists and scientists say is that the predation, because we got here, like we've got cougars, coyotes, wolves, black bears grizzly bears and i also know a fellow that who did his master's research on bobcats and large male bobcats were very active predators of adult whitetailed deer. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting yeah. um, but so so we got a lot of predators but er- everything that I kind of know uh, know from from the experts are saying the dynamics that happens is the predation doesn't necessarily affect the whitetail population so much but they feed a lot more predators than than have a dispropor- who then have a disproportional impact on mule deer elk and our endangered caribou and stuff.
2: So one of the one of the more challenging concepts for um, individuals who don't have a, a a lot of scientific background training is is the idea of what we call compensatory mortality. So and what I mean by that is if if you're a deer and you're going through winter and you've got a broken leg, you're, 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 you're borderline starving. um, And uh, say a wolf or a coyote or a a bear, maybe not a bear, but um, you know, something comes up and, and has an active act of predation on you. It's easy to look at that and say that, that wolf or that coyote killed that animal and took it out of the population. And there's truth behind that. But the other, the other side of that coin is there's a really good chance that that animal was probably not going to come out of that winter anyway. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have the data in front of me, but a lot of our biologists routinely go in and look at predation, especially in our upper peninsula, um, and, and, you know, do a carcass examination, and you can actually take um, the leg of a white-tailed deer and, and brack- break it open and look at the bone marrow. And if the bone marrow has like a like a jelly-like consistency, it's 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 an indication that that animal was in really poor nutritional health and is is essentially starving.
1: It was starving to death. Yeah, starving
2: to death. And a lot of those animals, not not all of those animals, but a lot of those animals are that are being taken by predators are ones that are chances are, are not going to survive long term anyway so we have um we have a, a very active wolf population in our upper peninsula of michigan and it is i think probably like most places in north america a a, a lightning rod issue um <laughs> i uh i'm i'm very glad that i'm not a, a wolf biologist um pretty much every day um, because that is a real challenge. But our, we do surveys for wolves. Um, and we, our, our surveys um, for years, I think almost 10 years now have been very steady. They've essentially plateaued um, in terms of population number. So and we have between, I think it's like 600 and 700 wolves in our upper peninsula of Michigan. And during that time, you've got our deer population that, you know, are experiencing really high numbers or really low numbers, um, over that time. And the time when wolves are getting the most blame is when deer are at the bottom of their cycle in terms of low numbers. Um, but you don't hear a lot about wolves having an impact on the deer population when their numbers are much better And the wolf population really has not changed a lot over that time so you've got one consistent variable that is the wolf population and then you've got you know your deer population that that experiences fluctuations every couple years Um, it's not the classic predator prey model that most young biologists you know learn of which you know I was always taught on this uh, sort of lynx snowshoe hare population where yeah yeah you, your snowshoe hair, exactly your snowshoe hare yeah. you know when when that goes well your lynx population increases and when your snowshoe hare population declines your lynx population declines too it mm-hmm. we don't we don't see that same trend at least in Michigan with with wolves and deer
1: huh very very interesting maybe we'll get some mail from some hunters in michigan saying six to seven thousand wolves what was he talking about
2: <laughs> yeah i wouldn't be surprised i don't know how far yeah. your your listenership goes but uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a very much a current lightning rod issue in the state yeah and, uh, I,
1: I i think really that's challenge. i think that's part of the uh that's, that's what you sign on for when you buy a hunting license There's certain things you have to, have to believe. But, um, so now, now dig it, let's dig into whitetail deer management a little bit. Um, so maybe kind of walk us through some, um, you know, ways that, that you're familiar with, like with overall whitetail deer management, like approaching it, like, what are what are the objectives, how are objectives set? Like, what are you, you know, trying to accomplish, you know, those sorts of things. And then maybe kind of what, maybe in your experience, maybe places that are doing it a little bit differently.
2: Yeah. Um, so each, each state and, you know, I, I, I don't know as I'm sure it's, I'm sure it applies to provinces as well. I just don't know um, as many of those as well, or their management strategies, but, you know, in each case, what, what, what each, you know, governmental agency is focused on is obviously sustainability. You know, you don't, you don't want to develop a, a recommend, a set of recommendations that is going to lead to, um, extremely low or poor numbers of, of animals that you previously once, you know, were, were hunting and and were abundant. You know, that is obviously, um, the, the top A1 priority for almost every, institution tasked with managing um, a wildlife resource is to to manage it sustainably once you're confident you can do that you you go on to some secondary goals and that's where you start getting into a little bit more variety you know whether it's um, some states might might simply or provinces might manage for opportunity so in other words, you know, you've got a really long season. Um, we, we don't have any concerns that the number of deer you're going to take is is going to crash the population. So go out, have fun, choose when and where you want to go type thing and and just have fun. You know, just you've got three months to go and maybe harvest one or two deer. Just have at it. Other states might adopt more of a a quality or even a trophy sort of mindset and how they want to manage their their deer herd. So um, there might be some restrictions applied in terms of when you can harvest a deer or, or what type of deer you can harvest. Um, some states limit um, buck harvest to having only restrictions on uh, that you can harvest older animals. So it basically protects a younger cohort um, that's done through either like an antler point restriction. So the animal has to have you know anywhere from two to three to four points on one side of its of its branched antler. Um, that's in our state that's designed to protect at least fifty percent of the the yearling animals. so you're you're trying to graduate them to an older age class, which is obviously a lot more desirable for hunters. Um, a more extreme version of that is is sort of like a, a trophy hunting setup. Set and that's something what you I don't want to say it's necessarily what you see in Texas, but you know, certainly what might be adopted in by by some hunters in Texas where instead of getting it the animal to maybe a two or, or a three year old age class from the on the male side of things, you're really looking to get to about four or five years old. And that's typically when The animal is at its peak. That's when, you know, skeletally, it's, it's fully mature, you know, muscularly, it's fully mature. That's when it's devoting a lot of its additional bonus resources to antler growth. So that's typically the age class that you're looking for, for maximized, um, growth of, of an individual animal. It's four or five. You you start getting in that four or five okay. maybe even six range, and at that point the animal starts to be on the decline. Um, okay. Now, in a lot of a lot of at least the, the states that I'm familiar with, which is sort of that north central Midwest of the United States, it's it's a real challenge to get deer to some of those levels. There's uh, especially bucks. You know, there's a lot of hunting pressure. There's there's a lot of cars on the road. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of Maybe you know I don't want to say this is certainly hunting, but there's a lot of people taking shots at animals after dark or out of season um there's there's a lot of challenges for a white tailed deer, uh especially a white tailed buck, to get to you know four and a half five and a half six and a half years old. but that's why they're trophies, right that's why there's not you know one around you know in every woodlot it, it it because it wouldn't be a trophy then so Um, But those are, those are some of the real different management type, I guess, themes or schemes that, you know, are applied um, and and vary based on whichever state you're in.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So there's definitely different ways of coming at it for sure. Now, where you are, um, is it, do you have like those different types of management, management regimes for like different different hunting units or are you are you fairly um kind of blanket across the the state kind of trying to do the same thing or
2: we are we are very far from being a blanket state in terms of our regulations okay. yeah very very different um and, and there's 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 pros and cons to that uh, obviously so Michigan in and of itself is is very uh, diverse in terms of you know, its habitat Uh, So in in southern Michigan We always we always hold the the palm up for southern Michigan because it looks like a mitten Yeah, Um, the the southern part sort of around your your thumb and down by your where your wrist would be uh, It's very much agricultural Um, very mild mild winters Um, And and our deer uh, and it's, it's a lot of private land also. So um, okay. it's, it's very, very, very much privately owned. So that limits overall access and, and mobility of hunters and, and requires, you know, permission to be on that property in, in many instances. Um, our deer tend to grow a little bit bigger there, obviously, with the milder winters in the agriculture, um, a little bit more fertile soils as well. As you start getting up towards the the upper part of the, our, our lower peninsula, our northern lower, um, you start you know which is basically like your knuckles up. Uh, you start getting into uh, a lot more big woods, uh, a little bit less productive soils, a little bit less agriculture. Winters are have been better recently, so we haven't seen any types of uh, winter kill in our northern lower peninsula in, in recent years, but. Not nearly on the same nutritional plane as southern Michigan Uh, and that that reflects in in our deer numbers and our our antler growth as well. And then you get into the Upper Peninsula uh, of Michigan, which is bounded by Lake Superior on the north and uh, Lake Michigan and parts of Lake Huron on the south. Uh, and, And the Upper Peninsula is very, very diverse so in our south central part of Upper Peninsula it's very around this. A city called Escanaba it's very agricultural very mild winters high deer numbers but as you start going further north um, especially towards that superior shoreline you start getting into uh, really almost like a boreal forest setting with pine spruce hemlock um, much poor soils very little agriculture and you also run the opportunity for um, really severe winters as well so that, that occurs as well up there, too. So when you talk about management in Michigan, um, we have different regulations in terms of um, how many and whether, whether or not even if you can harvest antlerless deer um, based on where you're at in the state. So as you get in the southern part of the state, it's kind of a free-for-all, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> hunters, hunters can take up to 10 antlerless deer um, individually. They don't. Obviously, um, we know that hunters are limited. Whoa. Hunters are limited with um, freezer space and just time of field. So we we set that number high, you know, so that those who want to reduce the population really have no excuses. But we know that most hunters won't take that many. As you f- go up towards the Upper Peninsula, especially along the Superior Shore, antlerless hunting is essentially prohibited. You cannot take an antlerless deer um, in in that part of the state of Michigan. For, for antler deer hunting or buck hunting, um, you're limited to either one or two antler deer based on which license you purchase, and then which type of deer you can harvest um, is, is very varies based on where you're at. So we do have areas with antler point restrictions, which are designed to get deer to a, a two and a half or older age class, which is desirable for hunters. We have areas where we have pulled antler point restrictions off maybe for disease purposes um, because we we don't want that disease to proliferate more than it than it already has and we just want hunters hunters to be successful and then in, in parts of the state we have something called like a, almost like a hunter's choice where if a hunter buys a single license they they can shoot this type of deer which is a a, a no restricted antler deer, like a three inch uh, spike or, or greater. If they purchase a combination tag, they can they have to hunt under antler point restrictions. Um, but again, they, most of the regulations in our state um, prevent an individual from harvesting two very young bucks in a given year. We have antler point restrictions associated with either a region or a tag that um, keeps keeps them focused on an older bucket for at least one of their tags. So it's, it's very confusing <laughs>
0: mm, part of that's no. based
2: on the, 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 geography and the, the, the cover of, uh, Michigan. Part of it is, uh, politics and, and Hunter desires based on where they're at as well. Yeah. So it's a mix
1: huh wow that is very very complicated it's very <laughs> not complicated but it, it's complex like i mean it sounds like it's 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 good management because you're you're matching you know like hunting to the ecological and social you know sort of sort of situation i know here in british columbia you know there was sort of this thing developed decades ago they called like harmonization of the regulations where they kind of wanted like you know if you have whitetail management it's like everywhere and British Columbia is you know huge right like it's basically if you flop it down onto the states it goes from washington to the mexico border and yeah. takes up all of the western states so i mean there's you know whitetails are mostly in the south but we do have white tails um into the far north you know um, over towards alberta and in the far north some really big ones in the agricultural lands up there um so, so there's this this sort of big thing in british columbia of game management of like well if white deer is open then they all need everywhere in the province, the opening date has to be the same. It has to close on the same day and it's, you're allowed the same number of deer and the same or you know, restrictions or no restrictions or whatever. Cause there was just this thing where they thought, well, if it's, if the regulations are complicated, then people are just going to throw up their hands and quit hunting. Right. And it's like, but obviously you got to be, you know, pretty, pretty on the ball in Michigan and, you know north south you're doing different things and hunters seem to be making out okay with with it i mean you get a lot of pushback
2: yeah we we sure we we absolutely do (laughs) and that's just i think that's just par for the course um you know it's it's a balance right because you know as much as you want to manage you know distinct you know areas or regions uh based on what you have available uh, there there is some truth to you know the more diverse that you can make you make your regulations the more it's it's confusing for hunters to to follow and understand and especially it's less so for maybe the ones who have been hunting their whole lives and, and sort of are in tune with things you know the established you know um, experienced hunter they can catch on pretty quick but it, it can really prove to be a barrier for new hunters getting in and certainly if you don't have that mentor um, that's that's sort of guiding you along the way to what regulations are and what you're doing right. Um, it, it's, it's, it can be a real challenge. It's it's <laughs> maybe one of the reasons why I have <laughs> never taken up golf because I'm overwhelmed by, you know, which club to use and, you know, do I have the right cleats or, you know, anything like that. You know, there are things that, um, just looking at it seem overwhelming. And I think, I think hunting can fall into that, that bin as well as, you know, also
1: certainly. Well, here's a simple way to approach golf. And it's just based on a plus minus. So for, for every ball that you lose, that's a minus one. And every one that you find is a plus one. So when you're done, you come out and if you're a minus three, you, you lost three more balls than you found. Or if you're a plus two, you (laughs) found two more than you lost. Like it's just, it's a way different. It's a lot more fun actually. Yeah, that How, sounds... How'd you do? Oh, I'm a plus twelve. <laughs>
2: that sounds like a scoring technique that I can get into. Yeah.
1: Um, so, what are so what what are your, some some of your controversial things in whitetail deer management in in the state? Like what where where do hunter sort of thoughts and opinions really clash with the biology and science or with the social stuff
2: wow how long is your podcast for here how long do we want to go with this (laughs) recording (laughs) because i've got no shortage of topics Um, (laughs) um wow in michigan there 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 are quite a few actually that that eat into time um you know so obviously you know we start with talking about Disease. You know, we've got chronic wasting disease. We started talking about that at the beginning. That, in and of itself, can be extremely controversial. Um, just with the management, and you know how how some people view, I guess, disease management. I mean, it, there's no greater there's no greater model than the past year that we've gone through and how polarizing. You know, how a response to a a, a disease can be the same thing we get with with management of our deer resource as well so one of the one of the more accepted things that we do and most states do um, to respond when they find chronic wasting disease especially in a localized area is to prohibit the use of artificial baiting and feeding turns out that's actually a really um favorable method for a lot of hunters to use. Um, and whether they, they view it as a a tool for success or just a tool for viewing deer, um, it's something that a lot of hunters have grown up with and, and feel very comfortable using. So taking that away from them is uh, a a real challenge for them and, and a real challenge for trying to progress the science of disease management, um, you know, for, for something that we feel has, certainly potential for long-term significant impacts. Um, so when you have chronic wasting disease and then Michigan is somewhat unique as well in that we have uh, bovine tuberculosis in part of our deer herd also. And that's, that's unfortunate uh, and we've had it for a long time now, almost 30 years that we've identified it, but it's, it's almost unique to Michigan. It's actually so unique to Michigan hmm. that there are different strains of bovine tuberculosis Um, they actually have a Michigan strain of (laughs) bovine tuberculosis. Um, so, um, and for, for those who aren't aware what bovine tuberculosis is, it's a, it's a bacteria that creates essentially a a respiratory disease. Um, it really doesn't have population level impacts on, um, on white tailed deer, um, unless it becomes really advanced. Um, but you know, it doesn't really affect our population numbers at all. What it does though, is it gets in our deer population and serves as essentially a reservoir. Um, And certainly the deer can pass it back and forth to one another, but they can also pass it back and forth to cattle. So in our agricultural areas where we have bovine tuberculosis, you know, you have cattle farms popping up with bovine tuberculosis as well. And because, TB tuberculosis is a zoonotic disease that can get into essentially any mammal, including humans. Um, and cattle are, you know, largely a consumptive resource in the agricultural industry. That is that is a no go for our, our our federal Department of Agriculture. So there there are strict limitations and regulations applied, and uh, it's really difficult to foresee. Um, solving the, the bovine TB challenge we have in Northeastern uh, Michigan without addressing it in our whitetail deer population. Um, Hmm. But, you know, the models that we have say that the deer herd has to be substantially reduced and and maintained at very low levels for a long time. That's not favorable for hunters. That's something that they will push back on. Um, Yeah. So, so that, that is obviously a, a challenge on the disease side of things um antler point restrictions are 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 always a a challenge as well and where some hunters view an antler point restriction as an opportunity for everybody to experience an older age class of of bucks and and white-tailed deer which um, is often viewed as improving the quality of a hunt other people view that as don't apply your value system to my hunting experience um, and so you can see both sides of that argument. Um, so that can be polarizing as well. And then, uh, one of the issues that we think is, is going to be more commonplace is as our hunter numbers decline, um, and, and populations of, of humans continue to, to grow and expand is conflicts associated with urban deer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, urban settings are fantastic for deer. There are tons of you know, clover and lawns and, and landscaping that they can eat and really Sowing high. and yeah trampolines <laughs> and all kinds of stuff that deer <laughs> like. There's really high nutritional plane in urban settings. Um, so deer can be extremely reproductive and it, in many cases it serves as a refuge, um, for them because hunters just simply can't get to them. And, you know, we don't really like to manage our deer herd with the, the front end of cars, you know, that's, that's, that's how nobody wants to manage deer. So, you know, looking at ways to manage white deer in these urban settings, which come with a whole host of concerns, whether it's, you know, what type of weapon can you use to, to discharge, to, to remove the, the deer um, different value systems associated with the people that live in these communities in terms of what can be done with the deer herd um we actually partnered with uh, we didn't partner but we allowed um a research uh organization to come in at the at the city's request and uh do a project on a a sterilization project so the animal they so it's they sterilize the deer but they also lethally remove the some of the non-sterilized animals um too so that was the first time that a a dual management approach with incorporated non-lethal and lethal impacts were were brought forward in a community so um and that received a lot of um controversy too because none of that involves hunters (laughs) the sterilization side of things does not involve hunters it's very expensive you're looking at uh close to a thousand dollars a deer by the time you have you know, a a veterinarian involved, you know, drugs, you know, you know, time involved with staffing and et cetera. Um, And then you have, you know, classically trained shooters coming in to remove the deer lethally with, um, you know, a a highly frangible um, bullet that is, you know, usually placed right at the neck or the head of the animal and and the animals instantly euthanized. Um, Those, both of those techniques are controversial to hunters because they think that they can go in and just I'll do it for free. Yeah, and they yeah. can. That's true. But can you achieve the necessary goal um, set forward by the community and do it in a way that you know is certainly respectful of other boundaries and, and the equipment that you're limited to, and that that becomes more of a challenge.
1: It is. That is a messy environment. Like to mix mix hunting and game management together in those those urban urban settings, you know mm. the pr- the peripheries of them. I mean, it's we have the we have the same thing here. I mean, like in British Columbia and southern British Columbia where we live. Like I was saying in the beginning of the show, we're sort of got CWD at, at both our borders, and you got these urban deer populations where you know the growing sentiment now from a management perspective is, is we got to start getting rid of these deer because they could become sort of like Libby Montana, the epicenter for, for CWD showing up. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and spreading it. And then you got like, you know, deer that are peeing on, you know, playgrounds and schools and, you know, and contact and like all that kind of stuff. And then we have communities here where they've been licensed to do calls and you have organizations or groups of citizens in the community that then feed the deer at the other end of town from where the, where the deer traps were set up to keep the deer away from the traps because they don't want, lethal culling and then you have hunters that are like you know we don't really want to have anything to do with it you know archery or not because if one deer runs through town with the arrow before it expires or whatever which happens it can you know go a a little ways then you know then the whole issue becomes you know the ethics of hunting as a whole right like it's just gosh it's an ugly <laughs> it's an ugly one
2: it's a real challenge you know that as it turns out i didn't realize this until i was actually in a in a game management position but the the animals are easy to manage you know the wildlife is easy to manage it's the people are the ones that are the the challenging uh, parts of the the job oh. um The deer deer are easy to predict and they, they, you know, what's going to happen as you, as, (laughs) as you make certain recommendations that the unknown is always how will, how will it be perceived and how will it be received?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, 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 the protest in the media on your front lawn Monday morning, that's the guy that approved (laughs) it. (laughs) honey get the kids back in the house get the kids back in the house
2: (laughs) there was uh there was an old older biologist when i grew up i was actually going through high school and early college Um, his name was dr dr gary alt and he was tasked with really changing the direction for pennsylvania's deer management Um, so pennsylvania when i grew up was had a lot of hunters and you had like two weeks for, to, to, shoot your, what you call your buck, your antler deer. And then you had like a three day doe season. Um, so not much time to shoot, um, the, the side of the, you know, the population that produces and makes, you know, reproduction and, and contributes to, to the next generation. So, um, not surprisingly, the deer herd in Pennsylvania was growing rapidly, um, because hmm. there were very few. Uh, hunters taking antlerless deer, they were focused all on antler deer and the habitat was suffering. And so he took this job on, he was a former, uh, black bear biologist. And, uh, he took it on knowing that it was probably career suicide to do it. Um, But, uh, he went through and pitched this idea of antler point restrictions and growing bigger bucks. But you know, as part of that, you really have to take a lot of antlerless deer. And to his credit, he traveled around the state and I don't know how many public meetings he did talking about his, his, his goal, his management idea. And he was excellent at what he did, but There were times, um, I was told, and, you know, he, he mentioned, you know, uh, in speaking in a wildlife class in, at, uh, in college that he had to wear a, a, uh, bulletproof vest as he gave those talks because some of the crowd was just so completely unreceptive to, you know, this change um, because it, it did not align with the traditional, you know, what they grew up with. Um, and, and that's, that's unfortunate because I don't think anybody <laughs> should have to wear a bulletproof vest to their, to their job. That's especially that chooses a wildlife management field like that. That's uh, that's not what anybody has ever signed up for holy getting into this the that that career so um and there's there's stories of older deer biologists in Michigan and in back in the day that have had um either effigies hung or set on fire of <laughs> of them based on some of the decisions that they've made i i don't think that happens as much anymore the worst you just call it, you call it a couple of bad names on social media anymore but uh back yeah. in the day before social media um I think people took to the streets and publicly yeah, I mean, displeasure.
1: it's it's a different time. Like the, the social keyboard warriors are not as fit as the activists, <laughs> you know, like 10, 20 years ago, they could actually like run you down and beat you up or whatever. But I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy stuff. I mean, the antlerless season, you know, where we're from is, is a pretty hot topic as well. Um, and, I, am curious, like you, you, you said something, so I want to see what your thoughts are. The, 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 the people of the hunting community that are very opposed to hunting hourless deer, do you think it's, it's a, it's a sentimental thing? Like. You, you don't kill the females because they breed and, you know, like you, you, you protect them. They're the breeding stock, you know, that sort of thing. Is it an emotional thing? Um, Cause these white-tailed deer, like they're, you know, the those are very dainty and big brown eyes. Like they're not the, like the blocky, you know, masculine, you know, looking bucks. Is, is it, a, is it a, is it a male? Is it an ego thing? Um, or, or is what you said about tradition you know, like grandpa and dad and grandma and everything. And we grew up and are hunting bucks. And man, I got, I got old black and white photos on, on my, my wall here of like my grandmother with these monster big bucks. I'm like, holy, I've never seen one that big. And, and so there's the tradition part of hunting with families and you know, on bucks and like what we were talking before. Like you could talk, you could pick up a set of deer antlers, you know, and, and at Christmas time and talk about them with your family for like four hours. And it's like, come and sit down. We're going to, we want to eat, you know, kind of thing. So what, what do you, what are your thoughts? Is it, is it the, is it changing the tradition thing that that rubs people the wrong way or is it this emotional thing where you don't kill these big brown eyed, female animals like
2: yeah it's a great question and it it probably is a little bit of everything and it probably varies from from individual to individual person to person Uh, you know tradition is a hell of a thing like nobody i mean everybody's so emotionally tied to certain traditions like we have we have a tradition here in michigan that our firearm season which is it's it's like that's that's the holy day, right? That's the day that everybody <laughs> initially goes out. It is on November fifteenth. I mean it is it is a it is an etched in stone date just like uh, like Christmas is, you know, it <gasps> November fifteenth. And our hunters love that it's November fifteenth because it's very easy to understand. Like I know when opening a firearm season is so we've never even entertained the idea of changing it because like eighty percent of our hunters support a November, a November 15th start date. The challenge is that November 15th doesn't fall on the same day every year. So we could get a, a Saturday opener, um, where November 15th falls. And and that's, that's great because you get with a, with a 16 day season, you get three full weekends if you start it on a, on a, on a, on a on a weekend and that's that's great for opportunity it's great for getting people involved and we typically see a little bit higher harvest on on those years where november fifteenth starts on a weekend but you could also get november fifteenth starting on like a tuesday or a wednesday which is a little bit unique and different in that i mean it's i don't know how it is in british columbia but i mean that's something that doesn't you think of us a, a hunting season starting like mid work week is it's sort of a foreign concept with a lot of other other states and how it's run. Most of them are tied to a, a day of the week that's like, like the first Saturday after this date or the first, you know, whatever before this date. So tradition is a heck of a thing. Um, I mean, getting back to your original question, I, I've had a lot of conversation with folks that are reluctant to shoot does and they what I always hear is if you shoot one doe, that's like three deer next year. Yeah, so, yeah. So the
1: population, the population declines yeah. by three. I know. Yeah. So <laughs>
2: that's that's the that's the mental um, that's the mental math that I think is done a lot with people who are very re- reluctant and resistant to shooting antlerless deer is that they're thinking, well, if I shoot one doe, and you shoot one doe, and Curtis shoots one doe. My gosh, that's like nine fewer deer in our camp next year. Like we're not going to see anything. In reality, that's that's that doesn't work that way. And it, it's 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 easy to understand why that's confusing um, because white-tailed deer have evolved as their numbers get lower that their reproductive output can actually increase because the level of fitness with the surviving animals can actually support, you know, them having more fawns, you know, in, in subsequent years. So,
1: oh, so better, better access to food, a little bit less absolutely. stress, because you competition. Know, less competition. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it, you don't typically see that. And actually, again, one of the researchers I spoke with, um, did his PhD at the University of Illinois and is, is writing up, uh, what they call a monograph right now, um, which is which is a fancy word for basically saying a long research article, like 30, 40, 50 pages long, that's that's going to be published where most publications are probably in the, you know, five to six page or maybe 10 page range. Um, anyway, he uh, he looked at um, very intensive removal of white-tailed deer in, in suburbs of Chicago, which were essentially a, a closed forest preserve because there was no opportunity for them to immigrate or emigrate in or out of that population. And, and what he found was that um, to, to stabilize a white-tailed deer population, at least in that setting, understanding that not all settings are created equal, you have to remove um, probably between 35 and 40% of your deer annually, just to ensure that you have the same number of deer next year. So that means if you want to actually decrease the population, you have to take more than 40% of the deer herd out of the out of the population in one year and that's something that is is hard for hunters to understand that that listen if i have 10 deer here this year i have to shoot four to make sure that i have 10 next year that's that's math that doesn't that totally yeah
1: totally doesn't make sense (laughs) i i I absolutely know you know and had these conversations of like you know the these things don't work on a one-to-one basis, um, predator management is the same way. Like the removal of one predator doesn't equate to like one extra deer in the population. Like that, that doesn't exist. That, that's a hard one to get your head wrapped around as well. And I feel like, I feel like the, the agriculture model sort of dominates what people think wildlife populations work, right? You got a fenced in area, I got a hundred head of cattle Mm. this is my bulls these are my breeding cows and i should have x number of calves next spring sale i can do the math over the winter time how much i'm going to make blah 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 like that and then that's just how wildlife are managed right and and you don't take into you know into consideration that it's not a closed system things are coming and going dying and being born and changing and migrating you know one mile or a hundred miles or you know and and all these crazy things going on like you said some some places you know like they're not being fed like cows so some winters they don't get a lot of food sometimes they get a lot some places you said they're 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 breeding at 10 months of age and other places it's two years and it's just this crazy you know situation that that goes on so it's not you know, that that's that's really hard stuff to get your head around, the uh, population dynamics.
2: It's it it really is. You know, the, the analogy that I've said is um, it's almost like a banking thing, you know. So if your principal is X amount and you make a withdrawal, you're gonna make more money in interest the next year having less money in the bank. Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, that'd be great, but it doesn't work that way. But when we talk about deer reproduction and adding to the overall population it it kind of does work that way because you you get this you get this reproductive response at a lower population level and that's mm-hmm. that's a that's 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 a classic like uh you know we talk about like this this concept called sustained yield uh and a sustained yield curve and that's something that a lot of biologists especially deer biologists really try to familiarize themselves with that you know to, to get maximum growth out of a population you have to have you know you have to be somewhere around the middle of your carrying capacity essentially because that's when you have enough individuals that are reproductive in the population and still maximizing the number of 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 you know the, the potential for reproduction that that adds to your overall population if you have a lot of adults in the population that's that's what a lot of hunters want, but what you don't fail to realize is that you're not adding to that population. As you get closer to this carrying capacity, Your so your reproductive additions in subsequent years starts going down. And that's not a good place to be because you're obviously really affecting your habitat quality. Likewise, if you, you know, reduce your population so much, you don't have many breeding individuals in the population, even if, even if they're super healthy and have all the resources available to them, they're not able to, Add a lot of, you know, individually to the uh, to the population because there's only a couple there. You really have to be kind of in the middle. And that's that's the sweet spot where a lot of game managers try to be. And I think hunters would be the happiest. But the mindset of don't shoot the dough runs counter to that idea.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know it's a big, it's a big topic where we live, and it's like every one of these two year regulation cycles, it just comes out of the woodwork. Like you know, get rid of the doe season. You know, like hunters are saying the whitetail population's down and predators are up, and I've heard uh, the whitetails have shifted to being nocturnal, and you know, because of the doe season and. um the doe season is to recruit new hunters and because the deer are now nocturnal, they're not being successful. So these hunters aren't being successful. So we could just get rid of the doe season. Like it's, it's almost like, yeah, it's just, I like have heard every, everything as you, you probably heard. Oh, it's a, the doe season is a consolation for someone who can't get their elk. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> How much meat you got in your freezer? It's like the booty prize uh, idea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's not, it's not that easy. So, but, um, yeah. And you know what? I mean, I, I, if, if people, people believe that, I mean, like, that's fine. I'm just of the opinion. It's like, that's the great thing about hunting is that there's all these choices and you can make your hunt what you want it to be. And so I'm kind of like, like look after yourself. Right. Um, and if you personally feel bad about taking the life of an antlerless deer, it's just something you couldn't do morally. It doesn't work for you. Then nobody's forcing you to. Um, so like some people don't like to hunt bears They They just feel, man, that's just like, that's a totally different thing than a deer. I couldn't, you know, couldn't shoot a bear. Um, and it's like, great, you know, that's, Nobody's telling you you have to, but on the other hand, don't don't tell them. And you, you said this at the beginning: don't put your values on me, right? It's so.
2: Yeah, um, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's one of the great things about about not only just deer hunting, but hunting in and of itself. You know, everybody does it for a different reason, and I think those differences should be you know, either acknowledged or honored and not used as a, a divisive tool between it. Because that is, that's what's the most challenging thing. I think with with what I see from the deer world and the deer perspective is that it's very easy to divide yourself into a archery hunter versus a gun hunter, you know, a a, a crossbow hunter versus a vertical bow hunter versus a traditional <laughs> bow hunter versus a compound bow hunter. Like there are so, you know, a trophy hunter versus a, 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 brown and down hunter, you know, there are so many ways that hunters divide themselves into, um, you know, how they hunt or what they are hunting for. And, you know, there, I would really love to see and wish I could see more emphasis placed on bringing hunters together because when they're together, they're, they're a lot, they're a lot stronger. They, they have a more powerful voice. Um, and I think that's, that's something that we should, we should celebrate those differences that we have as hunters and not, not. the oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what, what do you think the future holds for whitetail management for you, Michigan, North America?
2: <laughs> that is a uh. great question. And I, I was, I've been thinking about this too. Um, you know, it's, for me, it's hard to underestimate a, a white tailed deer. I mean, they've been around for, you know, their ancestors have been around for almost 4 million years. Um, you know, an animal that can outlive like a saber tooth cat seems to be pretty damn good at what it's doing. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do think that there are, there are some interesting challenges on the forefront of of whitetail deer management and this is certainly the case in michigan and in a lot of places in the united states and i'm I'm sure i'm sure goes into canada as well um you know chronic wasting disease is really interesting to see how that's going to play out you know some of the the forecasts and models really really seem to say that 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 can have an impact on overall population numbers and I, i think it's really important to there's really no management for chronic wasting disease, especially once you get to levels like what you see in like Saskatchewan or Alberta. I mean, once it gets mm-hmm. to that point, I there's, there's nothing that we know of that can reverse course. Um, so trying to prevent it from getting to that level is obviously really important. Uh, and then trying to learn more about it as we continue to go, um, I think is going to be really important too. But I think that is obviously one of the top issues that I think a lot of deer managers will bring forward. The other the other thing that um, is always something that that I try to keep an eye on is um, how we manage our deer right now is with with hunters. And we've got this fantastic, you know, North American model of conservation that has worked out really well for us historically and gotten so many wildlife populations to to where they are today. Um, But that and that's been that's been on the backs of hunters, but our hunter numbers are not what they've been over the past 20, 30, 40 years. They are, they are going down. Like there is a, a cultural shift occurring. In Michigan, back in 2000, uh, we had over 800,000 deer hunters in our state. And where we sit today is somewhere between 550 and 600,000. So in 20 years time, we've lost um, almost a quarter of a million hunters, just in, just in our state alone. <clears throat> Holy! And when you look at the age distribution of our our current hunters, um, it's it's very much slanted more towards um, you know those those who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. So when you when you play that out over the next 10 to 20 years, we're easily going to lose another hundred thousand plus hunters. So the, the age, and this this is what I talk about with, with a lot of folks when I talk about this, and it's a lot easier when I have like a, a presentation and a, and a slide. It's a little bit difficult on a podcast, but in any healthy wildlife population, you have a lot more younger individuals than older individuals. Um, and that's that's just because, you know, you're adding a lot more individuals and you expect mortality to occur as you get older. So, but a healthy, sustainable population is a lot of younger individuals getting, getting an influx into that population. And obviously as they get older, there's fewer and fewer of them. We don't see that with hunters, you know, our, our big swell or our big curve is occurring right now for individuals, like I said, who are in their fifties and sixties, and we're not getting the backfill to replace that swell. So in other words, we're losing more hunters every year than we're gaining. So it's a population that's on decline. So as a population biologist, if you were to see that as a, as a game species or an, an individual species that you were managing, you would really start sounding the alarms and saying, well, can't, we can't continue to hunt the way we have before with this animal. You know, this, is, this is clearly an animal that's on the decline. We need to start pulling back. We need to sort of conserve what we have left. And that's not what we're seeing yeah. for hunters. So when we talk about management of white-tailed deer, we're going to be asking fewer and fewer hunters to be doing more and more from a management perspective um, just to just to keep deer populations at, at a at a level where they're not causing conflicts and eating crops and getting into vehicle collisions and and, and whatnot. That's going to be a real challenge um, because what we found here in Michigan is that, Maybe half of our hunters become are, are successful in a hunting season, so like fifty percent, and we we pretty much open it up, and we're sort of an opportunity driven state. Um, very few of them are; I think it's less than twenty five percent are taking an antlerless steer. Um, so already, you know, we're we're working with a lot fewer <laughs> numbers than we had before, you know, than what we're starting with in terms of how they're managing our population even fewer than that less than five percent are taking you know two or three antlerless deer you know because you know nobody's really protein limited you know it's 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 you know it's easy to go out and buy a pound of ground chuck at the store and probably a hell of a lot cheaper than you know investing your time and going in and in you know trying to shoot a deer with the cost of licenses and bullets or equipment or you know whatever you're really you know high it's 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 a challenge um so it's going to be really interesting to see how we can continue to manage white-tailed deer with fewer and fewer hunters in the landscape
1: well i mean that makes sense too when you're saying like i mean if most of your hunters are older demographic you know you might be allowed 10 antlerless deer in Southern Michigan, but it's like you're 65 years old and it's just you and your wife and your eight kids are gone. It's like, you don't need 10 deer. It's like one white tail deer can last two people, you know, like a year. So it's like the actual need of, you know, a household is, is probably less, you know, and that, that's your demographic. Right. So
2: that's, that's different. Most, most hunters, I mean, if you talk to, I think, I, I hate to say what an average hunter is because there's, everybody's got their own story and circumstances, but, you know, I'm, I'm just speaking from maybe like my experience and like, you know, one, of one for my, for my dad who, you know, at 70 still likes to go out deer hunting. Um, He'll, he'll like to shoot maybe two or three deer if he can. And, and that already puts him in, you know, the, probably <laughs> the top five to ten percent in terms of how many you know someone will harvest in a year but he looks at one deer as like that's my that's my baloney deer you know this is my steak deer and this is my like this is my like hot dogs and and sticks type thing so but that but like if he if he has something happen and he doesn't shoot a deer at all that year all that means is he doesn't have baloney or deer hot dogs or, or venison steaks, he's, he's not going to go hungry. Um, yeah, I know that's yeah. not the story for everybody, but it's, it's different. Um, and when it's, when it's not a necessity, um, it, it becomes, it can become a, it can become a chore to shoot, you know, multiple deer and go out and, and really try to actively manage a population. I, I know I've talked to people, I've, I've done stuff like that before and it's, it's a lot of work to harvest, you know, even four or five, six deer in a season. That is, that is a lot of work. And it, it can be really expensive if you're not cutting it up yourself too, if you have to pay for a processor to do things. So um, it's 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 gonna be, it's gonna be really interesting to see how that, that transpires over the next couple of years with, with fewer and fewer hunters on the ground.
1: Yeah, huh, that's very interesting. <laughs> Well, I mean, there definitely seems to be a lot of effort in North America on hunter recruitment, and you know, the the first time hunters that didn't grow up in hunting families. Like, there's a tremendous amount of people out there that are dedicating um, themselves and their efforts to to doing everything they can to make those people, you know, skilled and successful and having fun and 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 stuff. So, uh, hopefully, that you know, will 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 pick up and gain some momentum. So.
2: I think, I think all those things that are being tried are certainly worth trying. I mean, we talk about the, like, there's this local boar movement uh, that have been tried and, and, you know, sort of like the uh, like the adult onset hunting or, you know, someone, take someone out who's never had a mentor type thing. Those are all worth trying. And I think that's everything with that uh, those R three initiatives R three being recruitment uh, retention and reactivation are all worth doing and attempting, um, but they've been they've been in place for a long time. And you, you don't see these immediate spikes in, in participation that, that seem to occur. So I think I think the overall trend um, long term and projection is still going to be that we're going to lose hunters. You just hope that you just hope that maybe you can stem flatten that out a little bit more so it's not such a precipitous decline that we've been seeing. And here in Michigan, we've been averaging between three and five percent decline every year. Um, wow. So even if even if we can plateau now, last year was unique because of, of COVID. I think what happened was people rediscovered hunting and that maybe they haven't uh, done it before, wanted to try it. So um, I don't know if we can rely on having another global pandemic to recruit hunters <laughs> into the our 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 our, our, our culture, but, uh, um, we, we hope to maintain maybe some of that momentum and that's, that's where some of the marketing and stuff that come in that that they're working on.
1: There was a study commissioned a number of years ago, I'm going to say maybe like five to eight. And it was looking at, um, you know, the, those, those factors of, you know, why people, um, hunted or didn't hunt or, or, or whatever. And I remember one of the key things was, is it, is, it wasn't the cost that is associated with hunting. Uh, it was time and it was in economic downturns where hunting participation was actually at its highest. And I've seen that here in Canada, in Alberta and British Columbia, uh, we're apparently the only two jurisdictions in North America that are seeing increasing hunting participation. Hmm. Alberta's got more hunting licenses sold than British Columbia, uh, and it's on the rise. But both provinces had a huge spike in hunting participation when there was the big economic yeah. downturn, stock market collapse, and the price of oil fell out. Alberta was a huge oil economy of which a tremendous amount of you know British Columbians you know work there and when everybody went out got out of work when when the oil fields like laid off and that that the bottom fell out of out of the price of oil it's like they all went hunting and it was always counterintuitive this like well if you lost your job you're not going to spend this money and go out hunting and it was like no people had the money but it's just they didn't have the time so right. Maybe that's the solution to the hunting recruitment crisis is cut the work week in half. <laughs> uh,
2: keep, the, keep the pay the same and cut the work week in half.
1: That's our mandate, everybody. Only work half the week and go hunting. I'm, I'm, I'm authorizing that for both Canada and the United States. You heard it here first. I'll
2: tell you what, Mark, with a platform like that, you could get elected to almost any government office you wanted to. <laughs>
1: sure more more hunting less work that's a bump that's a bumper sticker um (laughs) t-shirt whatever nowadays chad thanks so much for your your time and your knowledge and your experience um that was super interesting
2: awesome i really enjoyed it i uh really really um, learned some cool stuff about whitetails awesome well i'm glad i was i was hoping i wouldn't disappoint uh so that was, no. uh, I'm, I'm glad I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, I, no, like I, I, I know it, it has to awesome. end, I know we gotta, I know we gotta wrap it up, but, uh, I really, I feel like I could <laughs> talk no, with you was... guys for hours.
1: Oh, totally. It's like, that's it, right? Whitetails, 12 months of the year, all day long, <laughs> drive our family nuts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Curtis, go ahead. All righty. <clears throat> Thanks, Chad. So today's episode, once again, is supported by iHunter. If you're interested in getting their public land subscription, head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THC Podcast for 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. Codes available for all their Canadian apps, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. So if you're planning any sort of hunting trips or fishing trips or whatever, now that... Uh, Now that the country's opening back up, make sure you check out each one of those apps. You've heard us talk about it, go check it out. I use it even when I'm not hunting and fishing. I just love to sit there on my phone and monkey around, do a little e-scouting, find little hidden pockets of public land or funky little access points around private. And yeah, it's it's a really cool app. You guys should check it out if you haven't already. And thanks again to the Fisher Peak Brewery for sponsoring this episode. Not really much to say. It's hot everywhere, especially in BC. You're going to get something cold to, and refreshing to drink, so you might as well make it beer from the Fisher Peak Brewery in Cranbrook. So once again, thank you to iHunter and Fisher Peak Brewery for supporting what we do.
1: Yeah, thanks to those groups. So I was watching a video that you produced Um I'm not sure what year you were kind of given a rundown on on um, the the, hunting, the upcoming hunting season and a few of the changes and stuff, and you talked about I, I'll have to get you to, to explain this. So when you're doing your regulation proposals, you said something about you can accept a hunting proposal from one of the founding groups. And if they pay for a survey of hunters and you have 66% support something, then your policy says you take that forward for, just explain that. What, what is
2: that thing? Yeah, so in, in Michigan, um, we talked about antler point restrictions and how some people love them and some people want nothing to do with them. That is that's part of our antler point restriction policy. So the way what the way we've developed antler point restrictions um, to turn it into a regulation in Michigan is that a group of hunters can bring forward their their proposal and say, "Listen, I want antler point restrictions in my part of the state where I hunt," and we'll say, "Okay, show us you have enough support at least initially." Um, and you're, you're willing to, to send a survey out, um, which the survey is what we send out, you know, but they, they pay for it essentially. So they'll go through and get a bunch of signatures. I forget how many it is at this point. It's not much. It's only like a hundred or a couple hundred. Um, and they'll say, all right, these are the counties we want. This is the initial support we have. And we'll say, okay, well, it seems to jive with the area that we're OK with at least allowing this. So we're, we would be at least entertain this idea. So we'll we'll go to them and they'll say this survey have to go based on the area you're talking about, have to go to thirty five hundred people, or whatever. Yeah. And they'll say and that'll cost X number of dollars to get the survey done. And, and what you get for that survey is we send out the survey, we send out two postcard reminders. And we do all the analysis and present you with, you know, what the results are. Um, And then we present that to our, what we call our natural resources commission. And our natural resources commission is a seven member panel that independently is sort of our checks and balances for our agency. So we just don't go through and make regulations and say, ah, I feel like this, so I'm going to do this. Like we have to actually propose it to them. They weigh in public comment, the science that we provide, and and then make the decision on saying, yes, it's we're going to move forward with your recommendation or no, we're going to reject your recommendation. So um, if they get 66% support from the survey and 66% of the hunters say, I would like to try an antler point restriction in this area, I think it would benefit the management of our deer herd. We take that information and we propose it to our natural resources commission. Um, And and at that point, it's usually a a pretty done deal. Um, But the reason that we chose 66% support originally is because we didn't want to get into this, um, you know, margin of error discussion, like, you know, how you get polls with elections. It's like, well, there's two candidates running and, you know, it's polling it. 52% Fifty-two percent for this candidate, plus or minus four percent. Once, like, well, okay, we don't really know then, how things are going. Either one of them could be winning. <laughs> that, that's right. So we wanted we wanted to get into this supermajority idea, and uh, we we had that sixty-six percent threshold for for quite some time. It was actually just uh, reduced um, through a working group uh, to sixty percent support. So um, maybe making it a little bit easier to get a gateway into an antler point restriction, but um, that's, that's how we sort of attacked that controversial issue before by basically saying, let, let the people speak. And if enough people are really asking for it, then we're fine to move it forward from a commission and a recommendation okay. point.
1: I like that. That is, that is, that is super, super cool. Yeah. Cause the way we do it here is, is I phone you up and say, Chad, um, look, I talked to a bunch of guys and they all agree that the deer population's down. So here's what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. Um so and you're saying great come back with a rigorous poll that shows that 66 66% of the people from a significant number in that region support that and
2: exactly. So from a uh, from a biolo- cool. from a biologist standpoint, we every Every recommendation we try to make, or every change, we try to back it with either biological data to support that recommendation, or or social data um, yeah. that basically says hunters hunters want that, um, and, and and that's we, that's
1: equal equally valid. I, you know, I always say that the science and wildlife management is biological science and it's social science.
2: Absolutely. So in, in a lot of the decisions that we make from, especially when we talk about deer from a biological standpoint, it's, it's probably pretty neutral. And, you know, it, I mean, we're not going to make a recommendation that's going to crash our deer population. So what it, what it, what it amounts to is what do people want? And, you know, deer are considered a, a, a public resource and they're held in a public trust. And and us as a or me as a biologist is is a trust manager. You know, I so I try to manage that resource based on you know the biology of the animal, but also what 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 the individuals utilizing that animal, specifically the hunting public, desire. Um, so so I have you know a, a background in, in, in biology and experience and, and education but that information goes to what's called a trustee and a trustee sometimes has biological training and, and sometimes doesn't. They're, they're generally appointed individuals by, uh, governors or, or whoever. Um, but their, their task is to take the information that we're providing, um, that, that we are hopefully supporting with, with sound science, like I said, biological or social, but they're also weighing that with, public comment and what other people are wanting. And and a lot of times you'll, will propose something and say, look, this is supported by 55% of individuals that we, we polled, but you get the right person that's not supportive of that. And they'll, they'll talk to somebody and they'll maybe bring up an economic impact or a special circumstance where it might not apply. And we might not get necessarily have support or, or have our commission to move for that. And that's that's okay too it can be frustrating at times but that's that's honestly how the game is played and yeah. if you if you get checks into, and
1: balances you said yeah, right? yeah yeah if
2: you get into deer management and, and this this was this was totally me as a as even as a college student a graduate student you know you just think that like you do the science and you present the science and science rules the day. And it's like, no, it's not <laughs> like that at all. Um, that's, that's certainly a part of it. And, and I, I do think is a foundation, but there are, there are individual biases, there are politics at play. Um, and, and I think, I don't think I'm speaking out than saying that any, any biologist or any individual that has been involved with wildlife management, um, you know, would say that that doesn't exist. It, it absolutely does, and it's yeah. really part of the game. And it's it's unfortunate at times, um, but but it's it's just sort of reality.
1: Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very very different way approaching it than what we're what we're used to. So, last thing, I just need you to to quickly explain this again. So, when it comes to white-tailed deer population management if you got 10 deer and you want 10 deer again next year, say that again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, this, and this is, this is in an area that had really um, no, um, no other sort of mortality factor. So it was largely based on um, removal and and trends. Um, You really had about 40% of your population being removed. by by hunters to maintain your population and that's gonna that's gonna make a lot of people cringe and that's that's probably more applicable in an agricultural setting as you get into sort of a bigger Northwoods area that number might change a little bit because there's other determining factors sort of like uh there's there's like uh independent variables that you don't have control over so yeah moving 40 percent of your deer herd in the hunting season and then you know, if you happen to lose another 10 to 15 percent or 20 percent in you know from a severe winter or a disease outbreak or something, um obviously you're gonna have fewer deer, but um you know it might not be able to with- not every area can withstand that level of harvest, but in your very highly productive areas, um you, you absolutely can. And it's uh it's an eye-opening statistic. Um, but as you dig into the biology of a white-tailed deer. Um, and see some of the stuff that uh, is going to be coming out and has already come out in terms of uh, Like some of the research that's been done here in Michigan a long time ago on this what they call the George reserve deer herd um, That was done by a, a researcher named McCullough um, It's pretty incredible to see how populations can increase Wow, yeah
1: Great stuff man. I love
0: awesome. this awesome
1: fan fantastic and thanks for coming on the show Thanks to the Michigan DNR for letting you come on or you'll tell them tomorrow. You're on a podcast. I'll tell them
2: tomorrow. (laughs) They'll be
0: fine.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Super, super appreciate it. And, um, so we're, uh, this is our podcast. We can do whatever we want with it. So we're allowed to swear on it. So in this episode, my mind fuck was that these little fawns that are out here in my property right now with spots can be breeding later this fall and getting pregnant that is mind blowing that yeah. <laughs> totally Jeez, so crazy yeah so
2: it's, a lot of people don't really have this little thing that's bouncing around can be this this horny devil here in a couple months so yeah. gosh <laughs>
1: yep yeah. no Thought that was that was the highlight of the episode <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> so all right man thanks cool. again and totally. uh, hey everybody thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode